we check in with Joseph Lindsley in Ukraine. Joe, I'm uh, curious about what you think about this story uh, regarding President Zelensky. He met with the Saudi crown prince. They discussed what they term a peace formula. Uh, what do you make of all of that? Bob, good afternoon from Kiev. And can, can you hear me clearly, Bob? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, I thought we, I cut uh, out for got a second. you connected. Mm-hmm. Great, nope. fantastic. Uh, th- those Russians, Bob. those Russians are not interfering with us at the moment. <laughs> well, and I'm in Kiev, so it's much safer here than than a few days ago when I was 30 miles from Russia in Kharkiv. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I don't. You know, with, with the. Uh, countries like Saudi Arabia have, you know, have been a bit ambiguous on this. I mean, Saudi Arabia was actually very crucial in, nego- in negotiating the release of Ukrainian and uh, uh, foreign fighters who were imprisoned by the Russians, including people I know who were sentenced to death uh, in the Donetsk, uh, so-called Donetsk People's Republic. It was thanks to Saudi Arabia uh, that they were released. Uh, and so, you know, they've tried to position themselves as sort of neutral on this. But... Uh, I, I don't put much stock in it. I mean, I think, you know, the I think that, the, the, you know, sort of Middle Eastern nations are sort of, you know, trying to hedge their bets and and, and uh, even more so than countries around the world. And, you know, we see sort of I think the, the thing to focus on is um, President Macron in France uh, uh, yesterday uh, gave a very strong speech. And but it was strange in a way. He He, he said. Uh, you know, we even you know, we should consider sending United Nations troops, uh, send, sending troops to Ukraine. And in, on the face of it, it sounds incredibly strong, but it's actually served to to scare more people to say, well, you know, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to inflame the situation. We don't want to send warriors uh, to, to Ukraine. And actually, the Ukrainian response uh, to, to Macron was, we don't need we don't need you to send troops to send weapons. And, and I think, you know, with, with all these, you know, you can have all these different meetings and peace formulas. Uh, and, you know, we see whether it's talking about peace formulas or talking about reconstruction. Uh, all of that is, in a sense, uh, a way to avoid the difficult and pressing matter of will countries send weapons so Ukrainians can continue uh, to hold the line and to fight uh, against the Russians. And that, that's really all it comes down to is, you know, can you know, I mean, after two years now, uh, you know, again, Washington, for example, still refuses to send uh, long-range weapons. The question is why. Washington still refuses to give Ukraine permission uh, to attack um, Russian military bases. Why? And I, I think that's really the question that everyone is, so many Western leaders are trying to avoid. Interesting email from one of our listeners, uh, Joseph. Let me read this. Tuesday's talk uh, generated a lot of questions for me that Joseph might be able to explain as time permits. He mentioned that Biden could send weapons to Ukraine now. Could you explain what President Biden could do without Congress approval? He also discussed using long-range weapons to hit inside Russia. Wouldn't you fear significant retaliation on Ukraine by Russia? And finally, uh, giving Ukraine weapons does help with jobs and a profit for the defense industry, as you both mentioned. But isn't a lot of this money used for the cost to make the weapons, which are then sent to Ukraine? Want to take on any of those questions, Joseph? Yeah, sure. All three of them. Uh, on the last one, uh, the, the cost to make the weapons is sent to Ukraine. Uh, the weapons that, you unite, that the United States and every country are sending to Ukraine were, you know, are, were produced and paid for a long time ago. Uh, many of these weapons have been sitting in storage 
uh, you know, not unused, you know, because Canada and Mexico are not invading the United States. Uh, well, I know people would see that different. There's no military invasion uh, of the United mm-hmm. States, and a lot of these weapons are, are, are unused. And so, uh, and some of them were actually were, were due to sort of be retired. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so the, uh, the the actually if you if you look at the cost of storing the weapons versus the, for for years and years and years uh, like in some kind of Indiana Jones warehouse or uh, the cost of sending them to Ukraine uh, you know probably it's more economical to send them here on the question of uh, the the uh, president the President Biden's authority uh, to and you know, you can you can say whether it's a good or bad thing for the president to have this type of power. Uh, but there's something called the Presidential Drawdown Authority, and uh, it enables uh, you know, the executive, the, you know, the White House and the president, uh, to, to send weapons around the world. Even if we go back and look at, uh, in the, in, uh, during the uh, beginning of World War II, when Winston Churchill was asking FDR for weapons, FDR was limited. You know, c- Congress refused to get involved. Uh, the United States had to be neutral, but FDR had things he could do. And it just it depended on how much he chose to to care that this was something that you know United that he wanted to help with, and so we even had stories that uh, you know the, the United States uh, put weapons near the border with uh, Canada, and the Brits had to use horses and tractors to take these you know to to to, to be within the letter of the law uh, hmm. to get those weapons, but they did, and and so you know that could happen now and. Uh, and, 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 and even we don't even have to go to these extreme lengths. I mean, the White House, you know, could, as they've done before, as they did last uh, October, they could just choose to send even 15 or 20 of these attackers, these long range uh, missile launchers uh, that are extremely effective. Uh, and, and Ukrainians use them very effectively within a week of their arrival last October. And then no one even talked about it. No one asked the White House, well, why don't you send more? Uh, so so there's a lot of things that they you know, the White House is putting all the blame on Republicans now, but but there's not enough scrutiny, really, of, of why the White House won't do what they can do. And, and we don't you know, we, we rarely hear uh, from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, the word victory. It's always as long as it takes. But what does that mean? And you can understand why people get uh, frustrated with that. And then mm-hmm. on the question of, of, of red lines, you know, this is what Russia has you know said since the beginning. You know, if you if you support Ukraine in any way, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll turn to the school shooter and we'll blow everyone up. Well, but we've seen time and time again those red lines don't really exist. I mean, th- you know, when the the Brit uh, the British government sent Ukraine the Storm Shadow missiles, uh, this amazing French British product, and they the, when the Brits said use them however you wish, because I think the Brits really remember how they almost lost their country in in World War II. And, and so Ukrainians use those to hit the headquarters of the Russians, of Russia's Black Sea Naval Fleet, the headquarters. That's pretty extraordinary. That's crossing a lot of red lines. And that was in September. Uh, it was late August, or early September. And there, there was months of very few major Russian missile attacks after that. So, so we, we see time and again when Ukrainians actually hit, you know, places in Russia when they're able to do it and in occupied Crimea. Uh, there's no major Russian response. And, you know, as we as I think about how well, I mean, today is a beautiful sort of spring like day here in Kiev. And I mean, it's remarkable. We, we everyone thought we were going to have no power and heat and electricity. <laughs> and here we are. And winter's almost over. And yet, if you look at stories uh, uh, for, from from within Russia, even in Moscow, there, it has been a winter plagued by uh, power difficulties. 
And, and there's a lot of speculation here. Has there been Ukrainian uh, 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 sabotage there? But, uh, you know, we, we have seen evidence of Ukrainian drone attacks on, on Russian uh, oil refineries. And, and each time, there's no major response from Russia. And so it's just a matter of, you know, this is where the, the, the Russian dissident uh, and chess grandmaster, Gary Kasparov, has said, you know, this, as I mentioned before, this is not a chess game. It's a poker game. You know, who's hmm. the big bad wolf and who will stand up to it? Yeah, it reminds me of all the uh, years of scary al-Qaeda threats after 9-11 that, that never materialized. Uh, this would be a good time for me to remind you that uh, you can text us or email us any questions or comments for Joseph Lindsley. The uh, text line, it's the same as the phone number, 312-981-7200, and the email is bobshow at wgnradio.com. We welcome all comments and questions and criticisms. Joseph, you, you have a thick skin. You can... You you can withstand anything, I believe, can't you? <laughs> well, I, I think especially after I've been in places, you know, with missiles sitting very close to me, uh, yeah. you know, it, you, you worry about other things. And that reminds me, yesterday I had, uh, right after we spoke, I had an interview uh, in the studios of Ukrainska Pravda, Ukrainian Truth here in Kiev, with Ukraine's uh, top tennis player, uh, Serhii Stokovsky. He's a winemaker and tennis player. And he, in, in 2013, he de- uh, defeated at Wimbledon, he defeated the then reigning Wimbledon champion Roger Federer, uh, and so it was, it was a great moment for Ukrainian sports. And so I, and now he's a soldier, and he was telling me stories about being, you know, at the front lines in a Zoom uh, uh, during the liberation of Kharkiv region and Bakhmut. And I asked him, I said, you know, I mean, as a world class athlete, you know, did, did that prepare you in any way uh, for for being in war? And, and and really, the pointed question was, you know, that moment when you were defeating Roger Federer the, at Wimbledon. You were defeating the reigning Wimbledon champion. Was there any similarity to that experience and being, you know, in, in battle during that liberation of Kharkiv region? Uh, and and he said no. He said no, actually, you know, not really because you know, at, when he it, it, as a sportsman there was there was joy. There was he, as difficult as it was, you know, when he was going against the number one, number two tennis player in the world. It was a joyful thing. And he said there was no joy in what he was doing at the front, you know, and, mm. you know, I mean, having to kill, kill the invaders, uh, you know, every, I mean, there was nothing comparable to that, not even his elite sportsman life. But he said maybe his only his hope is that on the day of victory, when the Russian invaders leave, he said that certainly will be more joyful than that moment of defeating Roger Federer. Uh, <laughs> but this is, you know, that, you know, here's someone who, you know, ha, ha, you know, has six skin, you know, is a world class athlete. And still was telling me, you know, how nothing could prepare you for the hell of war. Yes, that's for sure. Enjoy your nicer than Chicago weather, Joe, and we'll <laughs> talk to you. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Until tomorrow. Thank you, Bob.